Breaking up with your phone means prioritizing real-life relationships over those that take place on screens. Let's get something clear from the start. The point of this book is not to get you to throw your phone under a bus. Just as breaking up with a person doesn't mean that you're swearing off all human relationships, breaking up with your phone doesn't mean that you're trading in your touch screen for a rotary dial. After all, there are lots of reasons for us to love our smartphones. They're cameras. They're DJs. They help us keep in touch with family and friends, and they know the answers to every piece of trivia we could ever think to ask. They tell us about the traffic and the weather. They store our calendars and our contact lists. Smartphones are amazing tools. But something about smartphones also makes us act like tools. Most of us find it hard to get through a meal or a movie or even a stoplight without pulling out our phones. On the rare occasions when we accidentally leave them at home or on our desk, we reach for them anyway and feel anxious, again and again, each time we realize they're not there. If you're like most people, your phone is within arm's reach right this very second, and the mere mention of it is making you want to check something. Like the news. Or your texts. Or your email. Or the weather. Or, really, anything at all. Today, just over a decade since smartphones entered our lives, we're beginning to suspect that their impact on our lives might not be entirely good. We feel busy but ineffective. Connected but lonely. The problem isn't smartphones themselves. The problem is our relationships with them. Smartphones have infiltrated our lives so quickly and so thoroughly that we have never stopped to think about what we actually want our relationships with them to look like, or what effects these relationships might be having on our lives. Breaking up with your phone means giving yourself a chance to stop and think. It means noticing which parts of your relationship are working and which parts are not. It means setting boundaries between your online and offline lives. It means becoming conscious of how and why you use your phone, and recognizing that your phone is manipulating how and why you use it. It means undoing the effects that your phone has had on your brain. It means prioritizing real-life relationships over those that take place on screens. Regardless of who you are or why you're doing this, breaking up with your phone has its challenges. It requires self-reflection and the determination to wrest your life back from a device that has been specifically designed to make it difficult to do so. But as people who have broken up with their phones can attest, it is more than worth it. Not only will breaking up with your phone help you establish a healthier relationship with technology, but it will also have effects in areas of your life that you never imagined your phone could touch. The more you notice your interactions with your phone, the more aware you'll become of the world off your phone, and of how much of it you've been missing. Breaking up with your phone will allow you to reconnect with a part of you that knows that life doesn't happen on a screen. And the faster you can get in touch with it, the better. Technology designers deliberately manipulate our dopamine responses to make it extremely difficult for us to stop using their products. In order to maximize the amount of time we spend on our devices, designers manipulate our brain chemistry in ways that are known to trigger addictive behaviors. Most of these techniques involve a brain chemical called dopamine. Dopamine has many roles, but for our purposes, the most important thing to know is that by activating pleasure-related receptors in our brains, it teaches us to associate certain behaviors with rewards. Think of a rat that gets a pellet every time it presses a lever. Dopamine makes us feel excited, and we like feeling excited. Any experience that triggers the release of dopamine is, therefore, something that we'll want to experience again. But that's not all. If an experience consistently triggers the release of dopamine, our brains remember the cause and effect. Eventually, they will release dopamine anytime they're reminded of the experience. 
They'll release it, in other words, in anticipation. The ability to anticipate satisfaction is essential for our survival, it motivates us to seek out food, for example. But it also causes cravings and, in more extreme cases, addictions. If your brain learns that checking your phone usually results in a reward, it won't take long before your brain releases dopamine any time it's reminded of your phone. You'll start to crave it. Ever notice how seeing someone else check their phone can make you want to check yours? Interestingly, these rewards can be positive or negative. Sometimes we reach for our phones out of hope, anticipation that there'll be something good waiting for us. But just as often, we reach for our phones to help us avoid something unpleasant, such as boredom or anxiety. It doesn't matter. Once our brains have learned to associate checking our phones with getting a reward, we are going to really, really, really want to check our phones. We become like the lab rats, constantly pressing the lever to get food. Thankfully, food cravings naturally subside when our stomachs feel full, otherwise, our stomachs might explode. But phones and most apps are deliberately designed without stopping cues to alert us when we've had enough, which is why it's so easy to accidentally binge. On a certain level, we know that what we're doing is making us feel gross. But instead of stopping, our brains decide the solution is to seek out more dopamine. We check our phones again. And again. And again. When this happens, we tend to blame our binges on a lack of willpower, another way of saying that we blame ourselves. What we don't realize is that technology designers deliberately manipulate our dopamine responses to make it extremely difficult for us to stop using their products. Known as brain hacking, this is essentially behavioral design based on brain chemistry, and once you know how to recognize its signs, you'll see it all over your phone. Every moment of attention we spend scrolling through social media is attention spent making money for someone else. When the author asked people which category of apps they find the most problematic, social media was the most common response. Like junk food, the content of these apps is hard to stop consuming, even when you're aware that it's making you feel sick. It should make you feel sick. From its deliberately addictive design to its surveillance-based business model, social media represents the epitome of Trojan horse design. It's meant to manipulate us into doing and sharing things we otherwise would not, often with negative effects on our mental health and society at large. And once you understand the forces behind social media, you may begin to think differently about many of the other apps and features on your phone, too. Let's start with a question. Have you ever wondered why social media apps are all free? It's not because their creators are driven by a philanthropic urge to help the world share selfies. It's because we are not actually the customers, and the social media platform itself is not the product. Instead, the customers are advertisers. And the product being sold is our attention. Think about it, the more attention we devote to Facebook or Twitter or a dating app or other social media, the more chances there are for the program to show us a sponsored post. And the more information we voluntarily post, the more personalized, attention-stealing, and profitable for the social media company the sponsored posts and ads will be. In the words of Dopamine Labs founder Ramsey Brown, you don't pay for Facebook. Advertisers pay for Facebook. You get to use it for free because your eyeballs are what's being sold there. In other words, every moment of attention we spend scrolling through social media is attention spent making money for someone else. The numbers are staggering. A New York Times analysis calculated that as of 2014, Facebook users were spending a collective 39,757 years worth of attention on the site, every single day. It's attention that we didn't spend on our families, or our friends, or ourselves. 
And just like time, once we've spent attention, we can never get it back. To be clear, there is nothing wrong with spending your time on social media or on any other app. There is also nothing wrong with a designer trying to make an app that's fun, engaging, and profitable. But as users, we should be using our apps because we've made a conscious choice to do so, not because of manipulative psychological tricks that are meant to make money for someone else. Social media is making us depressed. Perhaps one of the most disturbing aspects of social media is the effects that it is having on our real-life relationships with other people, and, as a consequence, on our mental health. Most people sign up for social media accounts out of a desire to feel connected, but numerous studies suggest that the more we use social media, the less happy we will be. In 2017, the American Journal of Epidemiology looked at the same group of people over time, hoping to determine whether social media use actually caused unhappiness, as opposed to simply appealing to people who are already unhappy. It concluded that there does indeed appear to be a causal relationship. As the authors described their results in the Harvard Business Review, we found consistently that both liking others' content and clicking links significantly predicted a subsequent reduction in self-reported physical health, mental health, and life satisfaction. Social media is a big brother. Imagine that someone knocked on your door and asked you to register the following information with the government, your full name, birth date, phone number, email address, physical address, education and work history, relationship status, names and photographs of all family members and friends, photographs and videos of yourself for as far back in time as possible, your political leanings, your travel history, your favorite books, your favorite music, and your favorite, well, everything. Would you? On social media, we provide this information and more voluntarily, and with virtually no thought as to what the social media company might do with this information. Smartphones place us in an intensely focused state of distraction that creates long-lasting changes in our brains. The structure of our hearts and livers doesn't substantially change once those organs are formed. And until surprisingly recently, scientists believed that the physical structure of our brains, and the function of individual neurons, was similarly fixed. Then came the realization that our brains are constantly changing, and even more shockingly, that we have some control over the process. London cab drivers are one of the most famous examples of how, through thought and practice, we can change the structure and function of our brains. Aspiring London taxi drivers must memorize an astounding number of navigational details about the city, including the names and locations of roughly 25,000 streets, 320 common routes through the city, and the points of interest that exist within a half a mile of each of these routes. Before being allowed to drive a taxi, would-be cabbies must pass a test that's so comprehensive that it's simply known as the knowledge, and yes, they still have to do this, even now that we all have phones. In 2000, a team of researchers led by Eleanor Maguire at University College London published a study in which they scanned London cab drivers' brains to see how they compared to the brains of people who had not devoted months of their lives to memorizing the intricacies of the city. The researchers discovered that the area responsible for spatial memories the posterior hippocampus was larger in the cab drivers' brains than in the non-cabbies. The time they'd spent studying London's streets had a physical impact. Their thoughts had changed their brains. What's more, the longer a person had been a cab driver, in other words, the more time they'd spent practicing, the more noticeable the change. Think about that for a second. And then think back to the fact that as of 2017, Americans were spending an estimated average of more than four hours a day on their phones. If you spend four hours a day doing anything, you're going to get pretty good at it. 
Most of the hours we spend on our smartphones are not spent in concentrated thought. Instead, we're picking up our phones for minutes or seconds at a time. Even when we're on them for longer stretches, we're not engrossed in one activity. We're scrolling and swiping between screens. And even when we stay within one app, say, a news app or social media, we're usually still not focusing on anything for more than a few moments. Every tweet, message, profile, and post pulls our brains in a different direction. We end up acting like water bugs, skittering on the surface without ever diving in. But that's not to say that we only casually focus our attention on our phones. On the contrary, they completely absorb us. The result is what seems like an oxymoron, an intensely focused state of distraction. As it turns out, this type of frequent, focused distraction isn't just capable of creating long-lasting changes in our brains, it is particularly good at doing so. Your phone is killing your attention span. The first thing to understand about our attention spans is that distraction is our default. Human beings are naturally distractible because, in nature, things are often trying to kill us. We want our attention to be drawn to changes in our environments because those changes might indicate a threat. But why is staring at our phones so much more distracting and compelling than, say, scanning our surroundings for tigers? In The Distracted Mind, neuroscientist Adam Ghazali and psychologist Larry Rosen suggest that it's because our phones, and, for that matter, the internet, satisfy another evolutionary quirk, our desire for information. Human beings seem to exhibit an innate drive to forage for information in much the same way that other animals are driven to forage for food, writes Ghazali and Rosen. This hunger is now fed to an extreme degree by modern technological advances that deliver highly accessible information. In other words, our brains both prefer and are programmed to seek out and be distracted by new information. And that's exactly what our phones encourage them to do. Our brains are exposed to an onslaught of stimulation even without man-made distractions like phones or interior distractions like thoughts. Sights, tastes, smells, sounds, textures, our senses are constantly presenting us with new information to act on and absorb. If you've noticed that reading a book or printed newspaper doesn't feel the same as reading the same material on your phone or computer, you're not crazy. It's not the same. When we read a book or the paper, most of the distractions we encounter are external, a barking dog, or the sound of a vacuum cleaner. This makes it relatively easy for our brains to decide what's important and to ignore what's not. This also leaves our brains with plenty of available bandwidth to think about and absorb what we're reading. When we read words in print, which is to say, without links or ads, we primarily activate the brain areas associated with absorbing and understanding information. But when we read on a phone or computer, links and ads are everywhere. For now, at least, most ebooks are a glorious exception. From the point of view of our attention spans, this is problematic in the following ways. First, every time we encounter a link, our brains must make a split-second decision about whether to click on it. These decisions are so frequent and tiny that we often don't even notice that they're happening. Second, unlike a dog barking in the background, online distractions are embedded in what we're trying to focus on. This makes it very difficult for our brains to distinguish between what to pay attention to and what to ignore. Trying to absorb the meaning of a word without noticing its link is like trying to count a dog's whiskers while the dog is licking your face, nearly impossible, and almost definitely unpleasant. The result is that the more we read online, the more we teach our brains to skim. This can be a useful skill to hone, especially when we're constantly faced with such information overload. 
But it becomes a problem if skimming becomes our default, because the better we become at skimming, the worse we get at reading and thinking more deeply. And the harder it is for us to focus on just one thing. Your phone messes with your memory. Our brains have two primary forms of memory, short-term and long-term, and our phones affect both. Long-term memory is often described as being like a filing cabinet. According to this analogy, when you want to remember something, your brain does a quick search of its archives and retrieves that one specific memory from the folder in which it was stored, leaving the rest of the files untouched. But that's not how it works. When we store a long-term memory, it doesn't exist on its own in a manila folder in our brain. It exists in a network of other connected memories. Called schemas, these networks help us make sense of the world by linking every piece of new information that we acquire to information that we already have. Schemas explain why a single stimulus, say, the smell of a cake baking, can trigger a flurry of memories. To understand why heavy phone use messes with our schemas, we need to talk about working memory, a term that's often used interchangeably with short-term memory. Broadly speaking, your working memory is everything you're holding in your mind at any given moment. It's the part of your mind that answers the question, what was I just looking for, when you walk into a room in search of your keys and get distracted along the way. Working memory, which can also be thought of as your consciousness, is the gateway through which every long-term memory must pass. After all, you can't have a long-term memory of experience unless you were conscious of it in the first place. Here's the first problem, our working memory can't hold on to many things at once. A famous 1956 study on working memory was titled The Magical Number 7, Plus or Minus 2, suggesting that we're able to hold between 5 and 9 items in our working memory, but more recent estimates put the capacity closer to 2 to 4. As a result of their limited capacities, our working memories are easily overloaded. If you got introduced to two people at a party, you probably would be able to remember their names. But if you got introduced to eight people at once, you probably won't. Likewise, it'd be harder to remember your own phone number if it were presented as an uninterrupted string of digits instead of in three distinct chunks. Adding to the challenge, the more information your working memory is trying to handle, which is referred to as your cognitive load, the less likely you are to remember any of it. That's in part because it takes time and mental energy to transfer information from your working memory to your long-term memory. And that brings us to our phones. Everything about smartphones overloads our working memories. The apps, the emails, the news feeds, the headlines, even the home screen itself, a smartphone is a virtual avalanche of information. The result, short-term, is mental fatigue and difficulty concentrating. The long-term consequences are even scarier. As we've talked about, when we train our attention on our phones, we miss out on everything else going on around us, and if you don't have the experience, to begin with, then it goes without saying that you're not going to remember it later. What's more, when we overload our working memories, we make it harder for our brains to transfer new information to our long-term memories. This, in turn, makes it less likely that we'll remember the experiences and information that we did manage to pay attention to. Lastly, when our working memories are overloaded, and our cognitive loads are too great, our brains don't have the resources necessary to connect new information and experiences to our pre-existing schemas. Not only does this reduce the likelihood of those memories becoming permanent, but the weaker our schemas become, the less likely we are to have insights and ideas. We lose our capacity for deep thought. How to take back your life. So here's the good news, we can undo many of our phone's negative effects. We can rebuild our attention spans. We can get our focus back.
We can reduce our stress, improve our memories, and reclaim a good night's sleep. We can change our relationships with our phones and take back our lives from our devices. Mindfulness. Mindfulness is a complicated word to define, but for this purpose, let's consider the definition put forth by Judson Brewer, Director of Research at the Center for Mindfulness in Medicine, Health Care, and Society at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Mindfulness is about seeing the world more clearly, including ourselves. This simple idea is actually quite powerful, especially when it comes to breaking addictions. How powerful! In 2011, Brewer and his colleagues published the results of a randomized, controlled trial designed to test whether mindfulness training could help people stop smoking. More specifically, they wanted to compare mindfulness to the accepted gold standard treatment, the American Lung Association's Freedom from Smoking program. Over the course of two years, Brewer randomized nearly a hundred smokers into two groups. One group was assigned to participate in the Freedom from Smoking treatment. The other group was trained in mindfulness. First, Brewer taught the mindful smokers about habit loops. They learned to identify their triggers and practiced paying attention to their cravings and reactions without trying to change anything. This step alone was surprisingly effective. Just paying conscious attention to the taste of cigarettes, for example, was enough to give one longtime smoker the resolve to finally quit. She moved from wisdom to knowledge, writes Brewer, from knowing in her head that smoking was bad to knowing it in her bones. Next, he taught them to turn toward their cravings, rather than to run away. Participants practiced recognizing their cravings and relaxing into them, that is, allowing them to happen without trying to stop them. They practiced paying attention to how their cravings made them emotionally and physically feel, and they used this practice as a way to ride out their cravings when they occurred. Brewer also taught participants formal meditation exercises that they were expected to do each day. When Brewer's data were analyzed, it turned out that the people who had received the mindfulness training had quit at twice the rate of the freedom from smoking group. What's more, far fewer people from the mindfulness group relapsed. Practicing mindfulness can be just as effective, if not more so, when it comes to breaking our addictions to our phones. But that's not all it can do. Paying deliberate attention to your moment, to, moment experience also gives you more fodder for memories that don't involve your phone. It helps you deal with anxiety. It adds richness to your life. And that's why practicing this form of mindfulness is one of the first things that we're going to learn how to do. How to ride out your phone cravings. The same approach that worked so well for smokers also works for our phones. If we simply acknowledge our discomfort without trying to fight against it, in other words, if we ride out the wave, our cravings will eventually fade on their own. For example, let's say you catch yourself reaching for your phone. Practicing mindfulness means that instead of trying to fight your urge or criticizing yourself for having it, you simply notice the urge and stay present with it as it unfolds. As it does, you can ask questions about it. What does the craving feel like in your brain and in your body? Why do you have this particular urge right now? What reward are you hoping to receive, or what discomfort are you trying to avoid? What would happen if you reacted to the impulse? What would happen if you did nothing at all? The next time you find yourself tempted to look at your phone, pause instead. Take a breath and just notice the craving. Don't give in to it, but don't try to make it go away. Observe it. See what happens. Conclusion. We have less time in life than we realize, but we also have more time than we think. Reclaim the hours you spend on your screens, and you'll find that your possibilities expand. Maybe you do have time for that class, or book, or dinner. Maybe you can spend more time with that friend. Maybe there is a way for you to take that trip.
The key is to keep asking yourself the same question, again and again, and again, this is your life, what do you want to pay attention to? www, what for, why now, and what else? Any time you notice that you are about to reach for your phone, take a second to ask yourself. What for? What are you picking up your phone to do? For example, to check your email, browse Amazon, order dinner, kill time, and so on. Why now? Why are you picking up your phone now instead of later? The reason might be practical, I want to take a photo, situational, I'm in the elevator, or emotional, I want a distraction. What else? What else could you do right now besides checking your phone? If you do your W's, and then decide that you really do want to use your phone right now, that's totally fine. The point is simply to give yourself a chance to explore your options for that particular moment so that if and when you turn your attention to your phone, it's the result of a conscious decision. Identifying your goal ahead of time also prevents an impulse to share a photo on social media from devolving into another 30 minutes spent absent-mindedly scrolling through your feed.